Hey guys, last year was a wild year for censorship for hunters and anglers. We've partnered with the social media platform Go Wild to combat mainstream social media censorship. Go Wild was built by outdoorsmen and women just like you. Go Wild is a free social community. Not only are your photos not censored, they're encouraged on Go Wild. Go Wild gives you points for things like sharing your trophies, gear reviews, and inviting friends. As you're important to you, unlock reward, awesome rewards too, such as gift cards, free swags, knives, huge discounts on brands like Garmin, Vortex, and so much more. Oh, and if you're creating a free account, you unlock $10 just for trying it. Visit and download GoWild.com to get started. Use the promo code BRB for an additional 10% off your order. Thanks, guys. What's up, guys? Welcome to uh, episode 21 of the Blue River Bow Hunting Podcast. Uh, I have a really ep- cool episode lined up this week. You know how I am, guys. I like to have the regular guys on to share their stories and their success stories and everything. This is like top of all those. Like, if 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 you are to pay attention to any podcast that I do on, you know, just regular guys that don't get enough attention. This is the one to pay attention to because this guy is a big buck killer from Michigan. Jake Bollinger, what's up, man? Hey, man, I appreciate that. Uh, no, glad to be on. Thanks for having me. No, I I, I heard you on um, Adam Bowles' Hunt the Wild podcast, and I was like, I have got to get this guy on. We have a lot of similarities with doing stuff, journaling, stuff like that. Uh, you know, you're, you got some big bucks on the wall, you know, it, I want you to tell everybody, you know, kind of the stuff that you throw in for all this to happen for you. Yeah. yeah you know, it. I think it starts really with my, uh, my attention to detail. You know, I, I think that's kind of something that uh, I hang my hat on as being super detailed in everything that I do to a fault at times. You know what I mean? Maybe get right. a little too worked up in it, but uh, you know, that's, I like to take everything to the extreme. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right and figure it out. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I fail, but I learn from those, you know, failures and, uh, and just try to try to do whatever I can to make those favors in my favor, or those odds in my favor. Excuse me. Yeah. You know, definitely. That's one of the reasons why I, I like doing this podcast. I like to tell you how I failed or how I succeeded and what I did for that to pan out either way. And, I think this will be a really cool episode. But first, you know, give a little bit of back, background on yourself. Tell a little bit. Of, tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Um, you know, 37 years old, wife, two kids. Um, just recently, a couple years ago, purchased our own farm to add on to the family farm, which, uh, you know, was a huge life-changing event. And getting a farmhouse and having to gut that and redo all that stuff. You know, I'm sitting in my man cave right now. I got a few mounts in, a few of my Euro mounts in. Um uh, other than that, uh, just work and working on the farm, uh, twenty four seven engulfed in deer hunting. You know, always <laughs> listening to you know podcasts and stuff like that. Uh, you know your homegrown shows like you and Adam Bolds. You know I found those. I really like that. Uh, that's kind of who I am too. I like to to see the common guys out there. So that's what gravitated me here. I appreciate it. Yeah, um, you know. You know, there's always those names that jump out to you when you see them on somebody's show or, you know, on a lot of the bigger shows and stuff like that. But there is a lot of guys, regular guys, just like me and you, that can do it just as well, if not better than those people, you know, and they get overlooked. 
And when I was listening to you on Adam's show, you know, the stuff that you were talking about, I was like, wow, this, this guy knows what he's doing. He pays attention to detail. Like you said, that's something I like to do too. And then when you're talking about the journaling, I was like, oh, I got to get him on because I do that myself uh, in pretty graphic detail, like you were talking about. And, uh, and I think it's going to be a good episode, man. So uh, how'd you get started into deer hunting? Uh, my older brother. Uh, my dad hunted a little bit, uh, but not a ton. And my older brother got into it and and just got me hooked. Uh, you know, we played uh, deer and hunter in the living room. You know, I ran around like the buck and he'd shoot me and gut me and pretend all that good stuff. And <laughs> it just got me into hunting. You know, of course, roots started with fishing, you know, just out in the farm ponds and stuff like that, messing around fishing, always being outside. But my first hunting was deer. I didn't, uh, you know, take the small game route or anything like that. Uh, 12 years old is the first time you can bow hunt in Michigan alone. Uh, so my brother would basically set me up with a, a compound, bear compound bow and said, here you go. And, uh, you know, unfortunately now I'm addicted and stuck. <laughs> it's not going away. So no, them do them roots run deep. You know, you talked about, uh, deer hunting being being your first thing that you really got into and not really getting into the small game at a younger age i kind of had the same the same upbringing uh my dad and uncle took me uh deer hunting and you know at first i'm not gonna lie at first i didn't really like it i don't know why it just i don't know why i didn't like it and then um i actually they said well you bring a video camera and film us i'm like that's cool man I, you know i was kind of into the electronics thing way back in the day and i was like yeah let me film you so i went out there and it, i think it was the reason why i didn't like it before is i had been on a couple hunts super cold didn't see anything sat there i was like yeah this isn't for me you know yep. and then i went and filmed them and saw 15 plus deer in a day and i was hooked like when i say hooked I like a crackhead or something you know what i mean <laughs> you know how bad it gets but um yep. I actually killed my first turkey before I killed my first deer, which nice. is a lot of people say that's crazy. Normally they get that, uh, the deer before they get that turkey, but it's fun, man. It's fun talking okay. about the old days, you know, did you guys have like a, like a deer camp every year? Yep. Yeah. That's, you know, that's actually what kind of got me down this path of, um, recording and journaling. Uh, we had a opening day, you know, uh, we had an awesome butcher shop where we everybody would take their deer to. We'd hang up, you know, deer. We had a cooler, all the machinery to take care of it. We processed everything ourselves um, along with other animals. So that's why we had it, you know, for, for butchering ourselves. And it just turned into definitely in every single year the night before. You know, everybody came over and we all hung out and shot the crap and, you know, got stories out and looking at books. And then, of course, opening day. Everybody got together super early in the morning, had an awesome breakfast, talked deer hunts, went out. Everybody, you know, the anticipation's high, have a good morning and come back in and do it all over again for the afternoon. So, yeah, That's it was awesome. definitely a tradition around our place. You know, 20, 30 people come over. You know, um, here lately on the podcast, when I've had people on, I like to bring up like tradition in the state that they hunt in. Talk a little bit about like Michigan tradition when it comes to deer hunting and just why you love hunting Michigan. Yeah, it's, you know, obviously I, I just love it because this is where I'm from. This is what I know. I've actually never been a travel hunter. I've, I've not hunted out of state yet. Got a couple of those in mind, but uh, um, just 
It is a huge tradition, you know, like a few of your other guests and some other people say, you know, our opening day of gun season, November 15th every year is a national holiday for us. You know, it should be every school should be canceled. Some schools actually did shut down for the day, um, but it was one of those that you knew you weren't going to school that day because you're going out to the deer woods and it was pretty darn exciting. Uh, but truthfully, I always like bow hunting more. Um, that was that drew me quick. You know, I like going out on the gun with my grandpa sitting in the blind with them. Um, that was a ton of fun, but it was just bow got me and it still got me. You know? Yeah, I, I agree with that. You know, you know, it's that time, that certain window, man, like, uh, you know, the pre-rut chase going on leading into leading into the rut, which obviously is a gun season. You know, it, it's just got a different feel to it, man. There, you know, for some reason, I get hooked a lot on those afternoon sets, pre-rut, late October you know you know you're already warm up in there you know and it's starting to get cold maybe the wind's blowing a little bit just that feeling you get and you can tell sometimes when it's when it's about to go down because you can just everything leading up into it and like you said journaling you know the the weather barometric pressure everything leading into what you know is about to happen and then it happening while you're there is even better But, uh, you know, most of the land that you're hunting up there, you hunting on private or public? Obviously, you, you got a farm, so you're probably hunting that pretty hard. Yeah, yep, private. You know, started off on my family's farm uh, hunting that, but with my two older brothers. Um, got into the QDMA early, you know, when not a lot of people in Michigan were doing that. You know, it was, of course, some people were, you know, shooting bigger deer and stuff, but it wasn't a big thing, whereas we turned it into a pretty top priority for us pretty early in the game. Um, and then my brother shot some really nice ones, uh, really nice one, 200 inch, you know, 21 point in Michigan, just a wow. behemoth of a buck. Yeah, just a giant. And that set us on the course of really getting into this, you know, getting into a pretty good, trying to make little small food plots and stuff like that. You know, before it was ever even on, you know, the big shows and stuff, we were kind of messing around with that, dabbling with it, you know, luckily around the agricultural land. Um, but now I'm on the, the in-laws farm in my own farm. That's so like awesome. I said, we uh, purchased our own farm uh, a couple years ago and added it too. So that was a big chunk. And I actually was lucky enough that this farm is funny enough. When I first started hunting the in-laws, I said, if I can ever buy that farm, I will sell my left leg. I will, <laughs> I will do whatever I need to do to get that ground. And it just, I can't believe it worked out. And I'm still on cloud nine thinking about it just because of, I now locked up that core bedding, that that key piece of bedding that I've been hunting around for so many years. And it's, you know, it's all 95% tillable, not a ton of true hunting ground that, you know, most people think of big blocks of woods and stuff, but uh, yeah, very fortunate to have some, some really nice uh, private ground to to hunt on. That's awesome. You talk about that. I want to hear some of this about this 200 inch deer. So where does it line up like all time in Michigan somewhere? Cause I can't imagine there's, that many 200 inch deer killed in the state of Michigan. Yeah, no, for a while it was number four. I don't know exactly where it sits currently, um, but it was number four, non typical in, in Michigan. You know, that's Boone and Crockett scored, officially scored, and everything. It was right. 1998. Yeah, so it was uh, just a beast. And, you know, to kick that whole story off, I remember this like crazy. I was wrestling, and I remember my brother, you know, calling me before my wrestling practice and saying, hey, I want to go to the, the small pound pond stand. You mind if I go? And I'm like, it's Friday night. I don't care. I can't get there. I'm wrestling. 
And I'll be a son of a gun of two hours later, you know, he's calling me and he's like, you got to get over here. You got to get over here. And of course, that was before I could drive. And I'm, mom, supposedly Donnie shot a giant. I'm going to see it. And I walked up and it was like, you know, even then I didn't know what I was looking at, but it just unbelievable. Just crazy. That's a a once in a lifetime buck. I mean, you know, these people obviously have um, deer management systems in place and a lot of outfitters and stuff like that, but still to get over that, you know, 200 inch hump. I mean, that's a, that's a hell of accomplishment. I mean, absolutely. Have you, did you have um, pictures or anything like that back in the day? Oh yeah. He was there. Oh no, no. Oh, oh, the deer. No, only a couple of neighbors. Actually one of the neighbors, you know, kept saying he was seeing a big one, but you know, at that time, a big one was just, you know, a good 148, 10 point. That, that was a good one. And uh, so we just chalked it up to that. Nobody really knew other than a couple of people that that true monarch was out there. Yeah. yeah. You know, my brother was only like 18 or 19 when he shot that thing. You know what I mean? So, and just 10 ringed it too with a, with compound, you know, it was like, oh, just, I don't know how he held it together, but he did just. No 10. kidding. I, I don't, I mean, I'm, almost 33 and i don't know if i could hold it together on a two inch 200 inch with my bow i mean that's uh-huh. um i've had you know my biggest deer is like a 137 so it's not like i'm killing that kind of caliber deer but even shooting a, a 137 will get me jacked up <laughs> better damn right yeah you know, and that's why we do it you know what i mean yes you know so sticking to the michigan a little bit you know i've heard people talk about like a migration when it comes to michigan deer hunting is that anything that like happens where you're at or what do you think about that i you know i'm not going to necessarily call it a migration where i'm from because i'm in southern lower peninsula in the up that's 100 percent. you know from the studies they've showed that at least from what i have read or whatever that there is a, a migration to summer and winter grounds you know it's a migration of sorts you know what i mean not like mm-hmm. what you think of with african animals and <laughs> right. alaskan animals and stuff but still a long enough distance and I 100% believe in my area there is summer and wintering grounds. It just, the deer totally change. And I, like, almost from all the years of trail cameras, know that switch of that week where things are going to just go whoop. And some of the deer that I've been seeing stick around, some of them do not. And I don't know where some of them even end up. And I know pretty much everybody around me. So, to, you know, so of course, some of them are going to be tight-lipped and not tell you what they're seeing. But for the most part, most of us farmers talk to each other and kind of tell each other what we're seeing. So... It's interesting. I'd, I'd like to know where some of them went. You know, I, I want to compare it because I kind of know we have this place. It's a pasture. It's not that big of a property. It's kind of in in between two ags. Um, I'm going to say 30 to 40 acres max. And it's just an old pasture, grown up pasture that they actually don't even mm-hmm. mow it anymore. So it, it's a great Fine. bedding area. Fine. And summer all summer long we get pictures of absolute mega giants become the second week of september they're yep. gone and they that's don't come, ours. most of them don't even come back yeah that's ours too and you know now that i'm getting a little more into some of the habitat stuff i understand it a little bit more you know like they say uh, a lot of a lot of people say that they, they want that breeze they want that air movement in the summertime they don't want that thick cover that they want and they don't want to beat up their velvet makes mm-hmm. sense to me i wouldn't want you know sensitive and stuff so right. i kind of understand why they do that shift and that's kind of what i've seen from my property one section of it that's ridiculously mature forest you know for a small ribbon that needs to be cleaned out and they're in there all the way up until the second week of september third week of september and then they're they're gone once that velvet's getting ready to come off i think that's when they start transitioning back to that thicker cover 
Now, do you think you, the rotation of crops has anything, any influence on any of that? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the key things that I started noticing as a kid hunting these ag grounds and being frustrated as heck of why am I always seeing them a hundred yards over there when they used to be right on top of me and I had everything figured out. And then I started noticing, you know, the change in the fields and or the crop rotations, definitely how they use the corn to get from place to place changes, you know, how they do that for sure. Agree. Yeah, definitely agree. Yeah. This certain place I'm talking about this year, it was surrounded by beans and this one certain corner of it. um, I mean, we had him in there every day for, you know, several weeks at a time here and there, he'd be gone a little bit, but now with it being basically surrounded by corn. So you're talking about an overgrown pasture, 40 acres. Now it's going to be surrounded by corn East and West and a little bit, and north, really. But mm-hmm. south, it borders a big, a, a, I wouldn't say a big set of woods. We'll say 50 acres-ish. It's, you know you know how Indiana is. You have spots of land here and there, and it's all kind yep. of spread out. Mm-hmm. And, and it's kind of in the middle of nothing, but you also have, like, a block to the um, the uh, east that's, like, 200 acres probably plus. And then on the, the other side, the, the west side, also another big chunk of woods. So, you know, we thought it might just been, like, a travel a travel destination a little bit with these bucks but you know the way we've seen them like i said it's a switch man but i'm thinking with you know the last time that it was surrounded by corn um we had those bucks would stay in there longer and we didn't necessarily have them in the summer it was more of a fall spot for them which i'm super pumped about because this deer this deer might hit around the 165 170 range i mean he's an absolute giant that's a beast. Yeah, definitely. Something like that. That that's got me just drooling thinking about <laughs> right. that fine setup, you know, in my area. Yeah, that's that's money right there. Yeah. Sure. So so you talked about hunting your private. Do you ever get out and hit any public anywhere? It's been a long time. Uh did when I was younger a couple of times, had some bad experiences, but uh, you know, you just you always come back to the farm it's always drawing you you know the not having to fight people kind of understanding what's going on of course a little bit less pressured deer you're spoiled you know i'll be the first to admit it i am damn fortunate damn spoiled to have what i got and i'm very very thankful for it though but yeah pretty much just private man you know give some other people some more ground there ain't no reason for me to be an internet hero on the public you know hashtag public land (laughs) have at it you know i'm i'm that's awesome. Some dudes are some seriously good hunters that are doing that stuff. And that's awesome. But just not my game right now. No, nope. uh, you know, and I'm the same way. I've been fortunate enough to been have a lot of public or private property to be able to hunt on. And, you know, you just get that uh, sense of relaxation. Yeah. You don't necessarily have to worry about somebody coming in and ruining your hunt mm-hmm. or this or that. And don't get me wrong. Uh, we did a public land trip to Ohio this past year. And I kind of have some horror stories from it, you know what I mean? And, and it pushed me away. It pushes me away from the public yeah. land game, yeah. which I still want to do it. I really do. I love checking out new places, and it's always exciting to hunt something new. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you go check, you know, a place you've never been before, and yeah. you you hike back in there and get set up on maybe you you know you did some scouting and checking it out. You you get excited because you don't know what could happen. Absolutely. No, definitely. Yeah, for sure. So we'll talk a little bit about deer management on your farm. You know, I know you're probably shooting, you know, waiting for the, the three-year-olds and all that. And do you have like an antler restriction that you're kind of going with? Like it's got to be over 130 or are you just shooting mature deer? 
Yeah, no, I mean, I, well, like I said, we started uh, QDMA way back in the day of just if it's eight points and about the size of its ears or outside of its ears, that was good. Um, and then my brother shot that big one, and that kind of changed our standards where we were like, okay, we got to let some of these ones go because we've shot a, a bunch of, you know, all of us have shot a handful of them. There's no reason to shoot the same eight, eight point every single year in a row. We got plenty of dough to shoot. Um, so then we started getting into that age class where we were really looking more for getting to that three and a half year old mark and seeing the jumps that they made, you know, between that three and a half and four and a half. And that's really when it started kicking off of, all right, we're letting a lot of deer go. We're, we're getting to the age class and now it's habitat stuff and, and getting that kind of stuff going. So here on my uh, farm that I control now, everything that I control over here, uh, 130 minimum for me. It, that's not to say if, a, you know, I actually got a, a nine and a half year old that's not even close to 130 inches, but he was nine and a half in Michigan. And that was by a teeth actual cut, you know, not by the wear indicator that mm -hmm. came black ink uh, back inconclusive. So that's when I sent it in to have it done. And I just was amazed because this deer was huge. I think it was 217 pounds dressed, Dang. you know, for my area in Michigan. That's a that's a big body deer. And uh, so, the, you know, age is definitely going to be a factor of it, too. If, if there's a big deer and it's not 130 inches, that doesn't matter. It's a mature deer. You know, I'm happy with that. That's a old, wise deer. Yeah, definitely. So what's what are you looking at at an average uh, three and a half, four and a half year old body wise in, in Michigan where you're at? Three and a half, you know, you're probably right there, you know, dressed that 180s, 200, you know, something around that range, you know what I mean? But uh, they can get bigger, don't get me wrong, by no stretch of the imagination was he the biggest deer ever around here. They can get much bigger than that, but most of them are somewhere around that that mark. So. That's awesome. So do you, do you guys, like, put together a shooter list every year, or is it just something that you're kind of – you just go by and you, you know that, you know, there's a couple bucks in there or maybe in there that are, are big enough to pull the trigger on? Yeah, I definitely do enough trail cam reconnaissance and stuff to uh, think that I have a decent idea of what's out there. And, of course, I'll come up with, you know, some shooters because you – know, why shoot a you know a 130 if i know there's three or four 140 pluses out there you know i just that's where i'm lucky enough to have that option um but definitely i don't you know i don't get into the whole like naming game too much unless something's like super unique and i know that without a doubt like that's him or something um or if i got a ton of experience and history with him i might give him a little nickname just because he's pulled the slip on me so many times that you know i'm almost a little jaded at that point so i gotta name it um but uh yeah i definitely like to establish at least some kind of an idea of of my list or my goals to, to go after that year absolutely mm -hmm. i i get into the naming thing i think it's fun yeah. and it's, yeah, it's it, it. and it's cool too like if say he you know throws a, a kicker off his g a couple kickers off his g2 or something like that and then you have to try to you know is that the same deer as last year like i don't know like sometimes they're just so unique that you know if it's him or not but sometimes you may not really know you know what i mean yeah, yeah see that's my area is just insanely typical i mean don't get me wrong they have their differences like every deer does but they are clean straight t normally tall wide you know just real nice typical deer you get your oddballs here and there and i've been seeing a few more but uh it's hard when i got four that are really nice eight points it's like what do i call this many eight you know i don't know <laughs> right. I, I just never really got too much into that whole naming thing but 
that just shows, you know, everybody takes it a little bit differently and mm-hmm. enjoys each side of it a little bit different. Yeah, I, I think it's cool to name them because, um, you know, you just get that, that backstory with them and then you're chasing them for multiple years. Like, we had this one, and honestly, I haven't seen this deer since um, the like, 2020 season. And his name, we named him Mike Tyson. He was an absolute stud. And, and, and when I say that, he was just a unit. Like, he was probably around the 180 mark, but his body, I mean, he looked like he was 250-plus on the hoof. I mean, when he wow. when he walked in on the trail cam photos, you were just like you're like take your breath away. You're like, oh my god, look at that body on that thing! Yeah. And he come in hitting scrapes and everything, and it was just you know. But I haven't seen him in two years, so I don't. I would have known if somebody killed this deer because, like you said, you have you, the neighbors that you hunt around and stuff like that. You know, mm-hmm. I would have known if somebody killed this deer. I don't know if he's just literally putting the slip on me that much. Or he's just completely gone and, you know, yeah. miles away from me. Yeah, never know. Dead in a swamp, unfortunately. Something, you know, could have happened too. Yeah, we yeah, had. It's some. funny you, you say that about naming. That's that's actually one of the reasons why I don't name him. So I had this buck. I called him Dagger 9. I knew him as a three-and-a-half-year-old. Well, then he showed up as a four-and-a-half-year-old as a 10 with just an insanely tall brow. Um, <clears throat> and he, he's mounted actually right up over the corner here. And I knew that deer, like – no other deer I've ever seen before. Like he was so patternable. It was just ridiculous how I knew where he was going to be. It was just to the point where it was unfair. Once I got out there, sat up and shot this deer when I called it like Babe Ruth. And when I got him over, I remember just like my buddy's like, Oh man, you got him. You got him. You know, ends the story. And I'm like, yeah, it ends the story. Like it just felt empty. I don't know why. And it, from that point on, it felt a little too personal. I don't know why it's just me. It just felt too personal for me. So I was like, you know what? I'm not going to try to target a specific deer with a specific name. That was just, it took a little bit of the joy of what I like to do with the hunting out of it for me personally. Yeah. I like, you know, I liked when you were on Adam's show and you talked about big bucks having different personalities, yeah. you know, just like people do talk a little bit about that. Cause you do a great job talking about that. Yeah, definitely. I will say that that is one thing I came to learn pretty early on is that every deer is so different. And I'm like, I'm pretty active in a tree stand. I like to call. I have had a ton of success calling. Um, and I do it when the conditions I think are right. And I have watched deer, you know, long enough to get their reactions. And it's amazing to see how some of them are like, oh, oh, hell no. You're in my territory. I'm coming in. And they're bristled up. You know, you see them, them stiff legs. And then you see other ones that even though they may be the oldest deer in the area, instantly shy up and tuck tail and bail. And I don't, <clears throat> I really don't think it's something like I'm over calling or I'm calling too loud because of the specific sequence that I like to use has worked so much and not spooked other deer you know what i mean i just it just seems like they get a negative reaction out of that particular call or hey there's another big buck over there i don't feel like fighting him today or whatever is going on definitely think they have different personalities some of them like i said this this uh 10 that i got was like hollywood man like that should have <laughs> what i should have named him if i named him something because he was in front of every camera all the time and it was just unbelievable and then i have other deer where i'm get one picture of and it's like how do you escape every trail camera other than that and just so uh loner you know that deer that big buck that just won't go next to groups until he has to 
So it, it definitely just antisocial until the mood hits him right. <laughs> yep. And everything has to line up perfect. You know, you, you see those guys like Adam Hayes, who's hunting these six and a half, seven and a half, just giant mythical animals to me. And they know there's only one or two days of the year that that deer might do what you need it to do. So, yeah, they, you know, they, they're big on the, the moon phases, you know, Adam Hayes and what is it? Team 200 or whatever it's called. Yeah, and sure. yeah. Uh, but going to that, you know, kind of that subject, you believe in moon phases when it comes to deer movement? So this one is a, a six in one hand, half a dozen in the other for me. I don't, <laughs> I don't believe that it makes deer move more. I think it does change their movement times. Like, uh, you know, a full moon, I do believe that they stay out in fields a little bit longer at times, you know, because that it's brighter um, and they can see a little bit farther through fields. So it brings them back to bed a little bit later or earlier. Sometimes it's even earlier. You know, if it's too bright, they're in bed an hour before daylight. And then that transitions to the evening where, you know, they might be coming out that little bit earlier, that 15 minutes that you need. They come out because that full moon has put them to bed early. So. Yeah, I definitely believe it does shift their times some. I'm not going to say it's, you know, like this myth that, like they say that red moon, you got to be out, that's going to bring every deer on every, I don't know. I've never saw that kind of correlation, but I definitely have said that I've seen the full moon affect when they go to bed in the morning and when they come out at night, just because, you know, it throws their balance off that 20 minutes or whatever it might be, 15 minutes. Yeah, I've always wanted to like, maybe try it like because I, I think it's a thing you have to like subscribe to to be able to get oh. that information but um i would like to know when it is just try it out one year just to yeah. see how if it if that you know correlates because it's like a it's like a time stamp it's like a yes. day a time and everything yep. and the dude shoots big bucks you know i don't know how if that yeah. correlates with it or not but you know it obviously would get somebody curious on the subject if he's shooting that many deer that big you know what i mean yeah again it's hard to argue with success right i mean it may not be something but to him he's seen a trend he's seen a pattern he's seen something in his journaling that has led him to that and he fully fully commits and believes in that absolutely so So we we've talked a little bit about you know your shooter list and deer management you know and you're we obviously do that a lot through trail cams. Um, what kind of trail cams are you running? I mean, how many you got out there? You know, I, I think a few more dropped off this year. So I think I've only got four or five now that I run. And truthfully, they're all mutts except for the Tacticam reveals. (laughs) I love the Tacticam reveal X's. Um, you know, I only have two of them, but I put them in key places that I just don't want to go into you know and bother them that's that's all i really use them for um but yeah i got some cutty backs i got some muddies you know i've had the gamut i seem to go through them every year or two is all they last so you know i don't i don't spend a ton of money on them but uh, i don't mind having at least a few sd card ones where i can get to them real easy on field edges and you know stuff like that low intrusion spots i'll grab some cheaper cameras just to kind of do some reconnaissance but i do really enjoy watching those cell cams all summer soaking in swamps and stuff like that. That's been a lot of fun. Just seeing the interactions, you know, over mock vines and stuff like that. It's, Mm -hmm. it's a lot of fun. That's awesome. So when it comes to placing a camera, say one that you, you know, like the, the ones that send it to your phone, are you putting that in like a, a, near a bedding area or something that you're not going to go in and mess with that much? 
Yeah, normally it's right there on the very fringes of those bedding areas. And then a few, uh, one of them I put on a mock vine that I have is, you know, not far from one of my archery stands. It's right up tight to the, the big main bedding right there. And that's a ton of fun. That draws deer 365, just all kinds of cool activity right there. So that's a fun spot to put a trail camera. Um, yeah, but normally that cell phone one, I'll, I'll put in pretty deep into something. Just get in there real quick when it's raining something you know, crazy wind where I can slip in there and get it on some kind of major trail coming in and out of my swamp and just let it soak. You know, I, I like to put them up six and a half feet or so, pointing them down. You know, I, I do like them above their eye level and uh, seem to not notice them as much. Yeah. Uh, this was my second year, I believe, uh, with the, the cell cams. And, you know, it wasn't bad. Uh, we had a few problems with them early, you know, and then I think I had two that I paid for uh, throughout the year and you know time November was over with December hit I pretty much killed those subscriptions because I didn't really need it anymore because I get like 200 pictures a month for free or something yeah. like that but um, I actually don't actually have any more cameras out right now but I, I love going in and checking the SD cards I don't like doing it like super often you know maybe once a month or something like that you know during the summer if we're throwing a little something something out there for them just to see what's hitting it or you know like i was telling you the the summer range that we got you know it, it's it's almost really fun to go check those because we really don't know what's ever going to be in there <laughs> oh yeah that's definitely one of, the, one of the joys of anticipation of seeing what's on that card you know that's definitely a, still a fun part of it for sure oh absolutely so let's talk about journaling because I that you're big into it and I'm big into yeah. it. So how did the, how did the journaling thing start for you? Yeah, so kind of to roll back to that opening day tradition, I, you know, my grandpa would was really adamant about taking Polaroid pictures of people that shot deer and brought them to the butcher shop, as we called it. And we'd weigh them, we'd put the day, you know, where they were shot at, just basic information. And so that's how it kind of started where I was always, you know, in there looking at pictures and reminiscing and and then noticing certain dates and certain tree stands were lining up. So it really started as uh, try to find that hot spot where, you know, where's the ticket spot that I need to sit at and just kind of going through, going through. And then it got a little more intricate on how we were doing the, the journaling, the, you know, how, what information we were putting down. And I started noticing just some random trends of some things, you know, the, the pressure temperatures, you know, that kind of stuff and started to kind of link things together of when were opportune times to get into certain places. So I just started slowly documenting pretty much every one of my hunts. I mean, of course I miss a few here and there, mm -hmm. but early on it was a little pad of paper, writing stuff down, basic information, just like you, you know, wind direction, wind speed, where I was sitting, just basic stuff, barometric pressure, started linking those together again, you know, the barometric pressure for sure, 30, 31 inches. I, I like that number. If I see it oh, anywhere yeah. in there and rising, I'm, I'm going to be out there. I don't care if it's 70 or if it's negative five, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll be out there hunting. And uh, so then it just took it to a whole new level when I started noticing those things of where they were hitting certain beans at the time of year, you know, this, this one little Valley held water for a little bit longer. So those beans would stay greener longer. So I'd write that information down and start patterning how they were moving and what they were using. And then as I got a little older college or something like that, maybe after I, whatever it was started really getting detailed, you know, that was when I was starting to mark 
how many deer I was seeing, where they were coming from, where they were going to, how long they were hanging around, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that way I could start figuring out how they were using certain areas of the property with certain winds. That way I could ambush them. So it just, and I still do it to this day. Uh, you know, I use my cell phone. I use, you know, whatever I can get in front of me, like that note section in the iPhones. I use that a lot. I'll just have it open and I'll just pull it out of my pocket when I, after deer walk by and throw in my quick notes. Uh, I'll screenshot, you know, the weather channel or something like that, just to give me information uh, so I can take it home if I need to and record it that way. You know, I don't take the pen and paper out with me as much as I used to just starting to dabble in the self filming some. So, you know, I, just one thing that I don't need to bring up there with me really. <laughs> I actually so. uh, downloaded like a journaling app on my, on my iPhone and that's kind of how I was doing it. But I think for me, it was more like a, an, an end of the year review type of thing. Like, obviously everything that you said as far as what i'm putting in there is about the same cloud cover barometric pressure wind direction where i saw the deer to where they went or you know something like that everything that you can possibly write down i did and i did miss, miss a few days too okay. but i wanted to be able to go back to that especially on some of these properties that maybe we just picked up mm-hmm. you know and, and yeah. getting to know those properties in a more you know a real anal way, you know what I mean? Like you're really getting down to the, the nitty gritty when you start going through all that stuff. And I can't remember exactly what podcast it was that I was listening to, but they had his old timer on there and he talked about an East wind. Obviously it's, that's something that where I'm at, we don't normally get that much. Two or three times a year. Yep. And he said, if it's an East wind, I know exactly where I'm going. And I can almost, like you said, I'm Babe Ruth in it. I'll tell you which deer I'm going to kill. And this guy had killed, like, it was something crazy, like 10 years in a row, um, almost pretty much, you know, a few days apart and with with an east wind. And and that's just crazy to me because this year that happened to me. I didn't realize it until I went back and read what I had typed up for the day. But I killed my buck this year on an east wind. He wasn't a giant by any means, but I happened to get it done on the east wind. And I saw a ton of deer that day in that particular location. So I think if I ever get an east wind, I might just go back to that property because I know exactly where they're going to funnel through at. I think I may have heard that same podcast because I remember hearing stories, you know, similar to that. I know that I've shot two of mine on East Winds, um, and there was one out of one stand, multiple years apart, but set up specifically for an East Wind for those two or three times that you may get a chance. And I can't remember somebody else was talking about it, and they said, "I will take off a day of work." Yeah. As soon as I see the day, the East Wind, I'm, that day, that day's off. I'm taking it off. I'm going hunting. <laughs> That's awesome. I think I may have heard, I don't know what podcast that was, but I've heard that same story before. Mm-hmm. So with the journaling thing, do you, th- what about like advantages and disadvantages to journaling? What disadvantages do you think that it has? You know, I would definitely say it's time consuming. Um, you can get caught up in it. At least I, you know, I did. I know for a few times it was like, Oh, here it is. Everything I've ever said is trends and everything I've ever said is going to work out. Everything's lining up on this day. It's going down and just getting that confidence, arrogance, really, truthfully, that it's going to happen. And you get up there and just skunk it up. And it's, <laughs> that can be very you know, humbling and, and teach you, OK, you know, I had a few of those events and it was like, 
they're still wild animals, dude. It don't matter what you think, what you yeah. say, what you see. There are variables outside of you plus the deer that that just don't make this happen. You can't think like that, you know. And yeah. and but at the same time, if you're as analytical as I am when it comes to deer hunting, there I have true beliefs and some trends and things that I see around my property of how they're going to use my property based off of wind direction. Mm-hmm. You know how they're going to crisscross back across the, uh, a field or what uh, tree lines they're going to use to get from A to B because of the wind direction. And that's why what I use to set up. And sometimes I play some sketchy winds oh, yeah. you know, of what people would think are sketchy winds, but I know how they're going to use the area in that method. And, and I can, I'll flirt with disaster because I might be 10 or 15 feet off on the wind and they'll just barely slip in and not catch me. So, you know, sometimes it helps you play that it's not perfect wind, but I know I can really got a 95% chance instead of having that wind perfect. You get more days out of being able to hunt, you know, weekends and stuff. Try to get as much opportunity as you can in those stands. So sometimes if I can risk it a little bit, I'm going to, I'm going to try to risk it. Absolutely. So what's like, what's an ideal wind for hunting your farm? All of them. <laughs> I like and, that answer. I like and truthfully, <laughs> that is, that's what, that's what I've tried to do is I've set up so many tree stands that, I have somewhere to go. Now, mind you, they may not all be my, you know, bread and butter, hot spots, prime spots, but there's somewhere I can go and see deer, watch deer, learn something from the deer and not educate the deer, you know? So that's, that's what I kind of use some of those stands as, is it might not be that perfect one that I'd really like to be at today. I'd really like to, but I just know the wind is too far off and I'd go to a different one and, and use it for some kind of education and just getting out in the woods obviously just the peace oh yeah you know you talked about you know the the winds and sometimes you just you know went after it anyways i can remember one of our hunts that we had it was actually our opening day of both season so that pasture i was telling you about we hunted it opening day and we don't need a north wind if the, if the wind's blowing to the north it's basically blowing our scent directly to where we think these deer are going to come out of and I think we were just ready to go. It was opening day, you know, and we wanted to hunt that spot because we had seen that big one there not yeah. long before that. So we, we decided to just go with it because, you know, we're, we're big in the scent game, so we play that sort of thing. And we saw a ton of deer that day, and they walked directly underneath us. Like, it, 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 it somehow played out, you know. I don't know yeah. if it swirled a little bit. But the one thing that we had on our side, and I've heard you talk about it before, they were cutting the beans that day so like the combines were running they're running you know 60 70 yards from the combine they don't care they're used to the farm equipment and i think that really helped us on that wind direction that day he had the you know stirring the dust up and the dirt and picking the beans had a lot of stuff flying around so i don't know if that maybe made them all move that night but we saw a ton of deer oh they're they're dinner bells absolutely absolutely dinner bells you know when they hear them combines fire up if they're not in the field while you're cutting, they're sitting on the edge waiting for you to leave and they're there, you know, but they don't care about that equipment. As long as it's moving, they're not worried about it. They stop it. Yeah, they might think about it, but you get out of it and they're, they're out, you know, they, they're, they've learned. <laughs> Have you ever been in, in, uh, in the combine and saw deer when maybe you had the chance to go hunting? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Many times. Is that yeah. a frustrating feeling? Not, you know, it's one of those things that you just say, hey, 
it is what it is at that point. You know, I don't get too bent on shape. You got to do what you got to do too. So, right. So let's talk a little bit about what you're doing uh, on these farms, the type of work that you're doing, where you, where you start off, you know, in the off season with working on these farms. Um, you know, off season is a ton of scouting. I love to be out there walking, you know, I shed hunt, but I'm not great at it. You know, you can see a few of them I found, but I don't find a ton every year. Um, I, I don't make it a huge priority. I'll look for the first hour and then it turns into a scouting mission anyways. So I, I just try to use the off season as a scouting and then looking at canopies, if I can cut, you know, on this farm is one of the first places that I can really, you know, open up and use my own kind of thing without having to worry about anything. So it's going to be a ton of fun. I hopefully document some of this as I go, my successes and failures. Um, but right now I'm just, I'm planning out what I want to do. Some of this is five years down the road because I am looking to actually reclaim all of the farm ground on my particular farm and turn it into whitetail, pheasant, uh, squirrel, rabbit, you know, all kinds of habitat. So stages of planning every single off season, um, looking for any kind of little improvements you can do, you know, farm ground, obviously most farmers are not going to give up their tillable ground for you to plant food plots. They, they don't like the deer, most of them. So <laughs> make do with what you can and, uh, get some food plots in. That's, that's a big one. Well, talk about, talk about like the work that you've put into it already. You talking like hinge cutting or, you know, planting a certain thing to create bedding Where where, where did you start out at? So I started out actually with, uh, you know, it was like a 40 acre grass field and just didn't hold deer. You know, they'd pass through it, but it would not hold them. So I started propagating red osier dogwood um, and silky dogwoods, knowing that it was lower ground, couldn't get on it with tractors, but I wanted some kind of cover and just notice an explosion in deer. You know, the red osier, they love it. They will browse the heck out of that stuff. Uh, the silky dogwood, they don't eat so much but it's just really good cover because it grows quick. It grows relatively thick to break, you know, your outlines up or at least make them think that they're in good cover. So I started just propagating that and trying to make that field useful uh, and then transitioned into a buddies and started just going haywire with all kinds of cool stuff. You know, at the time we obviously made some mistakes with how we were hunting food plots, making food plots just, in my opinion, too big, having a couple acres of stuff um, for our area, just, you know, isn't really useful to have them that big. Um, and then now I'm planning on, you know, not really doing any hinge cutting on my property. There's, it needs more of a canopy opening. So I'm having a select cut come through and some more timber taken off just to open that canopy up and th really thicken that up, you know, get the native vegetation going, get a ton of browse and then certain pockets. And that's what I'm hoping for is to create bedding areas, you know, the, south sides of a couple of hills i have some real nice white oaks even though most people would frown on me taking some white oaks out i got so many of them the couple of them taken out will open that canopy up so much to give so much more native browse underneath that it's going to create a, just a fantastic bedding area so that's one of my goals this winter hopefully here in the next week or two the the harvest company will be out cutting that lumber and then propagating some red osier i have a few spots that are low bottom and I'm going to go and take a whole bunch of cuttings. Uh, cuttings, I like to have them about a pencil thick and 18, 24 inches long. And I cut them on like a 45, you know, so it makes it a stake that you can stick in the ground. Mm -hmm. Carry some root hormone with me. And I just take a whole bunch of them and just stick them in the ground all over the place. And the deer will browse the heck out of them. So you got to kind of overwhelm them with numbers. But 
that stuff is phenomenal. Anyone in the northern belt that has red osier around, get on it. It's super easy to propagate. Awesome in areas that uh, normally aren't really useful for a whole lot more. You can make some cool browse plots, real cool browse plots. They'll hang in there before they get to the ag land, release out to the ag land, so you can have more edges to hunt. Works that's, well. That's awesome. I know you talked a little bit about like having a lot of like marshy areas. How how do you set up on those marshy areas, or what do you do with the marshy areas? You know, same. Just try to find a tree or two that you can get into and see what you can do um out of those trees if possible um that's what i really like tried to do because our marsh areas are pretty open you know they're not really timbered or much of stand locations so i try to create those as my holding areas that i don't really go into they don't really mess that's where it's going to hold them and that's where that silky dog when that red osier dog would have really come into a play for me has created what never held deer what never was cover good cover for deer is now great holding and great cover so they just kind of release from those pockets out to where i can actually get to them that's awesome so it creates almost like a staging area for them almost before they hit the ag fields yep yeah i mean a few of them i've got some box blinds you know in some strategic places by like a willow i uh you might have seen it i call it my hillbilly hilton it's uh it's two of those ibc totes uh, those, you know, like big chemical containers or yeah, whatever. This, yeah. this, these ones were maple syrup in them. But I cut them, <laughs> made, a, made a blind because I knew I couldn't get any equipment out in this marsh ground. I bought a oh, big dog tripod, I think it is. You know, one of them like Menard special 16 footers and put this sucker on the top of it. And it is sweet. You know, you look out <laughs> over that whole marsh that's just red osier and pockets of brush. And they just move in and out of those brush pockets pretty much all day long. And then, of course, I have the compliments of the ag. So at night, I know they're going to work out of those brush pockets from pocket to pocket where I can see them and then give me good shots as they're going to the ag. That's awesome. Uh, so your food plots, you know, you, you talked talked a little bit about the food plots. What are you planning and, and how are you setting up these food plots? I like to have my plots either long and narrow or if it's a block with like some kind of divider in it, like uh, say switchgrass or even a fence. I've seen people use fences. I have not used a fence myself, but in theory it would work. Uh, I like to put them on an angle to kind of pinch down that field so that you can set up where that pinch down is because they're gonna naturally wanna come around that and check out the other side of the field and stuff if it's a, if it's a big open plot. But I really like to have them um, kind of narrow and long. So that way when they get into the food plot, they really wanna go the length of those plots. You know, they, they'll kind of travel. So that gives you a couple little opportunities to, to ambush them. Even if they pop out 100 yards away from you, they, they still have a pretty good chance of coming down right towards you. Yeah. So what exactly do, are you planning for your f food plots? Uh, it's, a, it's a mix. You know, I, I like to do a bunch of different things. Uh, I, I do like to do like the crop rotation, I guess, if you will. Uh, so brassicas, uh, all types of brassicas, tillage radish. I'm a little heavier on the tillage radish, very light on the, the excess radish. Essex rape, sorry, mm -hmm. and uh, some purple top, throw some purple top in there too. That's generally my mix for when I do brassicas. And then on the opposite year of that, I'll do winter rye. I really like to do winter rye. And then if I can get some peas in there, I'll try to get some peas in there too. And that winter rye is you know, really good stuff. You don't have to work the ground much. You don't have to get it opened up, Just get it on that soil. And it'll, most of the time it'll grow pretty well. When do you think they hit those turnips the best? So, you know, there's multiple times for sure. Um, your prime time is anytime when they're young, when they start sprouting leaves, you'll see them nipped off. And as they grow up, they'll be eating those leaves quite a bit. But uh, 
once they start to yellow at all, it seems like they don't touch them at all. You know, once they're starting to rot and die down, they won't touch them at all until it seems to be pretty hard freeze. And then they come back and just destroy anything they can see above the ground. Just destroy right. them. Yeah, we uh we kind of ventured into the the food plot thing last year. Didn't nothing big. We kind of wanted to try like a micro plot. Like literally, it wasn't that big at all, you know. And uh, we just hit it with like some rakes and raked it up. Did like mm-hmm. a throw and grow type of thing. It had brassicas and some ryegrass and clover and that thing yeah. in, that kind of stuff in it. But they mowed it over like right off the bat, like early October. That stuff was gone. Yeah. Yeah, a little too small, probably, you know, for the amount of deer that were there. And that's the one downside about that is it can get mowed and you think your whole all hopes are lost. But, uh, you know, that, you know, one thing I would warn a few people on you, like, winter rye compared to rye grass mm-hmm. is a big difference. Winter rye is a much heavier attractant uh, for that, for the stage, a small stage. And you can go over it and keep putting it on every two or three weeks. And just go back over and spread some more and spread some more and spread some more. So as they mow that down, you can go in there, you know, pretty regularly and add some to it. And they'll just keep on coming. That's awesome. Yeah. Good uh, stuff. What's a, a tip for somebody, you know, getting into the stuff that like what you're talking about, you know, creating bedding and, you know, hinge cutting and just management period. What's some tips for somebody that's maybe never done that before and they want to start doing that sort of thing? Um. I would say for, for habitat, first, you, you got to know your, your property pretty well and do some research because you can't hurt yourself. You know, you can open up some woods and cause some problems. Uh, do a little research. The time a- ahead definitely makes a big difference um, on what you want to do. But don't be afraid to experiment. That's for sure. Because, hey, any kind of food source is better than no food source at all. Like So like you said, even though that was small and it was mowed down, that, them deer are still going to kind of come back there and check that out and see if there's anything left. So try it. You don't need to be pretty. It doesn't need to be Hollywood. I use some really crazy equipment and get very useful, you know, crafty <laughs> with some interesting equipment to get back to certain things because I want to try to make every square footage uh, I can make it work. So don't be afraid to just make something work. Pump sprayers, hand it, it will help you. It will definitely be a benefit to have some type of food source there that's different from what's around it. So say we want to try that, that micro plot again. Should we go in there like a couple of weeks before we want to, you know, hit it with the rakes and disc it up and stuff? Should we go in and spray it and kill off the weeds or grass or whatever's growing right there? Yeah. So you, you definitely want to try to get some of it down, but I've actually had some good luck with broadcasting into that overburden then spraying it, killing it off, and then coming back and weed whipping it down, you know, a couple of days later or whatever to put that thatch on top of that plant mm-hmm. or the, on top of that seed. And that's actually worked really well, especially with like rye and even brassicas. Um, that, that works pretty well for helping germination, holding some moisture onto that soil. Definitely. So you don't want to, you don't want to whip that stuff down first because then sometimes you can create a, a thatch where the seed can't get to the actual ground. So it's helpful to have some of that thatch to a point you don't want to have you know four foot tall uh foxtail that you're mowing down on top of it that's going to be too much that you know so you you have to kind of think of where you're going you might have to go in there and mow it prep it spray it a few times first and then do that same process um <clears throat> to get it to go yeah we just hit it with some we both had 
we took our like electric weed eaters back there and you know hit it as much as we could i think we ran like four batteries dead on the weed eaters trying to get it down because you know they can't even get a tractor back in there right now so it's like it was growed up so it it took us uh a couple hours to do that we got hot and sweaty in july but you know we were put in the work and i don't know if it's something we're going to do again this year it was a, a trial thing and they mowed it. I mean, they had like three or four different paths that just came into this area. And we had stands. We had a double set because we do a lot of filming. And it, it was right there. And, and like we got up into our stand on opening day and we're looking down like, oh, my God, you see all these like highways coming into this thing. But they had already mowed it all over. But the, 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 the three or four bucks we saw that night came right down the fence line from the ag, the beans jumped into where we were at and was browsing through there. So there was still something there they were looking for. Yep. Yeah. They were checking it. They, they knew it was there. So you established that, that pattern of use. And luckily, you know, it had lasted long enough at least to the, get to the first part of the season. And that's where you can, you know, really add on to that is you can still throw uh winter rye down that early in season. So you can still refresh and regenerate that, you know, next year. And they'll keep on coming right into that. It sounds like you got a nice little spot there. Yeah, that, that you might have just talked me into another year of it. <laughs> I, I would try it. I mean, and, and go heavy on that uh, winter rye. Don't mm-hmm. be afraid to go heavy. And same with winter wheat. You can put them both in um, on top of each other and relatively late in the year, obviously, because it'll germinate in pretty cold temperatures. So if you get some water on it, hammer down because they will be in there. If they're well, eating it a, like that, you got a good spot. That's the good thing about it. This pasture, that's the same place I've been kind of talking about this whole episode, but there's a creek that actually runs. I mean, it's, I wouldn't really even call it a creek. It's kind of like a drainage ditch that runs down through the middle of it. So I think it gets some pretty good uh, water from it, you know, and then obviously, you know, it's all pretty much wide open. Uh, so when it rains and stuff, you know, it's getting pretty good water on it, I think. I wouldn't give up on it quite yet. I'd try that out. Sounds like you got it going. Just maybe make a little changes or add some more tonnage to it. It just sounds like uh, you got a lot of deer that are on there, so need a little more tonnage. Yeah, like we were talking earlier, you know, you, you're learning places because this is only like the second year we've hunted it. And we've seen a pattern of them moving on the other side of this drainage ditch. So we're talking about setting a, a set of stands on that side of the drainage ditch mm-hmm. too because it happened to uh, my buddy Ryan like, three or four days in a row on that particular property where a buck hit the middle of that. And with the bow season, that's like a 70 yard shot. So we were thinking about moving a set of stands over there or, you know, I'm going to to the saddle game this year. I don't know how many people I got on board with me in my camp on that deal, but even if not, we can still figure, you know, he could bring a hang on with him or, or whatever, you know, it's always nice to have that hang on that you don't put up in the summer and just kind of keep it, you know, off to the side, you know, you never yep. know when you might need one. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. Definitely. So let's talk a, a little bit about some gear, you know, uh, what kind of, what kind of bow are you shooting? Uh, I'm a, I shoot a Matthews, uh, Z seven extreme, you know, a little bit older bow. Mm-hmm. It just, it drives tax. It's been comfortable for me. And I'm one of them that I'm not worried about keeping up with the Joneses. I want right. confidence. You know what I mean? I just, mm-hmm. I'm so confident with it. It's been with me long enough. There's no reason to change on the bow. You know, I just, I do, I do love that. Um, I'm a, I'm a lock on pretty much everything's lock on climbing sticks. Um, I have thought about dabbling into the saddle game myself just because the mobility seems just tremendous. If I need to make a move that, that just sounds awesome. The whole part of that sounds phenomenal. 
Yeah, I'm with you on the, on the bow thing. I think it might, the model I have is actually like one or two older than yours. I got the uh, Matthews Monster, and I've had it forever. And exactly what you're talking about, the comfortability, comfortability and I trust it so much. I know exactly yeah. where I'm going to put that arrow. And even, in, you know, having, you know, compensating for my angle, all that kind of thing. If they're close, yeah. like that deer I shot this year is at 10 yards. You know, like I, oh, I, I got to miss high. <laughs> right and I, I like i just drove it through there and i'm just so comfortable with it i don't know i'm afraid to change when it comes to that stuff and i don't i don't know if i can pull the, the trigger on that yet yeah yeah you know when when you're that confident and you're that comfortable with it why make that change at that moment yeah i don't blame you right so what about clothing is uh is clothing a thing for you or you just kind of like throw whatever on like walmart camo or whatever yeah, I mean it's it's just the old school real tree. I think I bought it at Cabela's probably 15 years ago. Um, it, it's uh, it was just a pants and, and coat, you know, nothing special, nothing crazy. Uh, I'm more of a layer, you know. I really like to do my my base layers, multiple base layers, mm-hmm. um, but nothing fancy. I'm not, you know, that Sitka guy or any of that kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> just just run on the mill kind of camo. It works for me and haven't seen any negative sides of it yeah you know it's it's like waterproof to a to an extent if it gets real heavy rain i get wet but it works well like you said just like when you're talking about the bow you're comfortable with that stuff it's it's obviously worked for you (laughs) for many many years why change it up now you know what i mean yeah yeah exactly so talk about i want to talk about the pope and young stuff like i know you have multiple deer in pope and young we'll talk about those bucks a little bit and how many you got um, I, I'm up to, I believe six last, last year was number six in in the Pope and young, um, just started out when I was younger, I got lucky to get on a pretty nice one and kept telling my brother, I was on a nice one and, and finally got a good shot. And actually that's that one of the deer that started me on that particular call sequence that I talked to you about, you know, with a, with a grunt tube and a, a doe can, and <clears throat> he came in on a string and, and pegged him. And was lucky enough to make it in. I think that was uh, one, it was low, low 130s, upper 120s, you know, just a, a beautiful eight point for the area. Uh, a couple years later, wound up getting lucky enough to get into another one, just an absolute giant of an eight point. I think it was 147 and three eights. Yeah, uh, just a beautiful, beautiful eight point for this area. Super tall, real nice buck. And um, that's the really what drove home for me of, okay, I think I'm going to stick with this one, you know, 130 kind of mark or Pope and Young. That's my number one goal every year. I want to stick a true Pope and Young with my bow. Um, and I just was drawn to the Pope and Young record book club because of who they are, what they stood for, their values. And that's kind of what I also, you know, kind of have them same values. And I was just surprised at how, how uh, enamored I got by the scoring. I loved it. I love the whole process. I love the record keeping. Um, and for me, it's not a, Oh, look at that size. I got a buck two inches bigger than yours. For me, it has nothing to do with any of that. No, you know, you know, Dick measuring competitions, (laughs) you know, I, you know, not worried about that kind of stuff. For me, it's just the record keeping because again, it kind of transitions into that journaling. It's all record keeping. Um, and just kind of, not letting the hunt end at the at end of the hunt or the taxidermy, but allowing more of that to continue to, to give the animal some more credit, to spend some more time with it. And it just, 
I love it. I love that whole process. So that's my number one goal every year. Try to go back and see Jim. That's my measure. (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, You know, um, I haven't got, you know, for obviously, you know, for Bo, uh, it's one, what, 125? I think it's 125, even for our Indiana book, and 140 with the gun. Um, I'm shooting for that. I want that record book so bad. And people call me crazy all the time. And it's not, like you said, it's not a dick measuring contest. Yeah. It's a personal goal that I, it's yes. something I want to do because I put so much time and effort into this that it's something that I want to measure my success by. You know what I mean? Like, and like you said, you get that, that paper back from, you know, him measuring it. And then, you know, you keep a stack of them or, or put them in a plaque or whatever you do with them. And then when somebody asks about that deer, well, well check us out. And, you know, you pull the paper out, look, you know, his main beams, you know, measured this, his deductions were this or whatever. It's always cool to talk about, you know what I mean? Yep. Yeah, agreed. That's, that's one of the things that I do actually with mine is I put the score sheet um, in a, a picture frame. Uh, generally with if if i some of them i did not go to but michigan has a uh, successful hunter patch mm-hmm. i'll go and get it checked in and get that successful hunter's patch and i'll put that in that frame generally the tag that i you know uh, shot the deer with goes in that frame and uh it just it's just another you know a picture i also put a picture of the deer like me you know uh, you know trophy shots whatever you want to call them you know i like to have my animals cleaned up real well and get a really nice quality picture with them and that kind of goes with the deer too. So it's, it's a story. When you look at it, it tells a story. And every time I walk in, I relive those moments every single time I look at them. And that's why I do it. It's, it's for me. <laughs> I'll oh, be you know, selfish. It's like, that was badass. That day was awesome. Right. That was a ton of fun. And I remember everything that led to it, you know, the whole day, the, everything about it. And, and that's where it kind of went for me. That's awesome. Well, you know, you, you very early in this episode, you talked about that you hadn't got to uh, travel to hunt yet. Is that something that you're working towards or want to set up? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've been uh, applying for preference points for quite a while to Wyoming. Uh, just even though I don't need a pile of them, I wanted. We're doing the antelope and uh, mule deer. Oh, that's so cool. that's going to be absolutely a ton of fun. You know, I'm excited to do that. That's been on my bucket list forever. So. You know, not venturing into the big game yet, but definitely want to get out and do, you know, chase some elk. But I got a lot to learn before I get into that kind of stage of game. And, you know, kids are young, so it doesn't really allow me to do a ton of traveling. But, man, definitely seeing social media and listening to podcasts and stuff is like, oh, that sounds so fun to get out of town with a couple of guys and chase some whitetails or whatever it may be. So I'm looking forward to it. Not a ton of, you know, set in stone plans, but that Wyoming one is, is a set in stone, so. When you when you said preference points, I thought you were gonna say Iowa, <laughs> because uh, I'm getting ready to start into that uh, venture myself. This will be my first year buying preference points for non-resident uh, deer tag in the state of Iowa. Iowa and Kansas are like a, a big thing that I want to do at some point. Ooh, yeah. You know, if, if I just if I just want to get there, I, I want to mm-hmm. be able to you know experience that firsthand. If, if it's public, it's public, and I go down that road, or if it's an outfitter or whatever. I just want to experience those things. You know, so many people talk about the deer hunting in Iowa, and I want to check it out for sure. It would get me pumped up just knowing that I'm getting to go to a place like that. Yeah, for sure. That that definitely sounds fun. But for me, honestly, if for the draw for me to travel is something that I can't get in my own state. Right. I, you know, that's my draw. That's what I want to kind of chase after is just something different. You know, I've never seen a mule deer ever the other than in pictures right. so 
that'll be a total new experience right there just to see one, let alone be able to possibly harvest one. So right. yeah, that's my, my draw goal is to get out and get something crazy. Oh yeah. That's cool. Uh, Talk a little bit about the scent stuff. We talked a little bit about it earlier, but like how how deep do you get into that? Are you spraying your clothes and washing your clothes and using wipes and all that kind of stuff, or is it something that you just kind of do every once in a while? No, I'm not. I'm not buying into the so, the scent spray stuff, the Ozonics. I haven't bought into any of that stuff. I used to. Don't get me wrong. I was that guy. I always bought. I can't remember what brand, but it was Earth Scent. And I had to have Earth Scent, and I would just douse myself you know i always grow my beard for hunt season so i'd spray it on my face and my hands and everything and and then i started noticing deer not spooking but definitely noticing something like when they would cut my path obviously we all know they're, they're going to catch something but right. they're not spooking when they catch it so that means to me they're not catching human scent they're catching something different and i stopped using it and i stopped seeming to have those issues you know, don't get me wrong. Of course, they're going to bust you every now and then cross into a footpath or whatever. But I stopped using the scent spray and all that kind of stuff. And now I just do the scentless wash. I do scentless wash, but I leave all my clothes outside 24 um, seven when I and when it's hunt, before hunting season by a couple weeks. And then all through hunting season, they're outside under a, a little canopy uh, on, on one of my shops. And uh, yeah, I don't I don't do any of that uh, that scent spray stuff anymore. No, nope. you know, you're like the third or fourth person that I've had on this podcast that shoot big deer consecutively that say they don't really play into the scent game. Yeah, uh, I think I might have to follow them. you on that. Yeah, you, you're not fooling them. And uh, I watched the show a long time ago. I don't know who did it. I want to say Primos, but I could be wrong where they did a dog challenge. And uh, supposedly the dog, I, if I remember, I could be wrong. Somebody's going to correct me, I'm sure. Oh, I think the dog's nose is not as powerful as a deer. Is that – maybe I'm I, wrong. I don't, I don't really remember. I, I know they're obviously their nose is number one, you know, in defense system. So I would say they're probably well, pretty close. Yeah, so they, they ran the, the, the dog test. And a dog's picking these people up, boom, 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 like nothing. And I'm going, wait a minute. This isn't, you know, this isn't, <laughs> isn't selling the product for me. And then not too long ago, I think it was seek one did it. And the same thing, that dog's picking them up, just boom, 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 boom. And I'm like, okay, I feel all right. You, you can't fool that dang deer. No scent warming your clothes up and the carbon clothes. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I just, I don't buy it. I play the wind. And like I've told you, I'm not afraid to risk it at times, but I'm not going to be stupid. I'm not going to dump it right over their bedding area, you know, but I'll, I'll throw it just a little bit offside of one of the trails. I know they're going to come in or something like that, but nope. Wind is my number one. You're always going to have that crazy one that gets you comes right. down. Like, what are you doing down there? <laughs> uh, you know, you talk, you just it. said something about uh seek one. Are you like a, a, a hunting channel type of guy? Or are you more like a YouTube type of guy? No, I'm a, I'm a you type of guy, like the backwoods guys. I like to watch <laughs> the dudes that are just out with the camcorders right. and their GoPros and stuff like that. Really, I, I don't like the – I don't want to say I don't like. I just don't watch the bigger shows and stuff, you know, the, the true hunting hunting pros. Right. I like watching the average Joe getting out there after he just busted his ass from 9 to 5. You know, that's, yeah. that's what I like to watch. Me yeah. too, and that's what mm -hmm. I – try to put out uh as far as content when i do uh put videos on the youtube 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't want to put videos on there, and I think I talked about this last episode, actually. I don't want to put YouTube videos on there where it's me talking to the camera like 80% of the time. I want you to see action in there. Yeah. But, uh, it's you know, you get that when you are talking to the camera. You're kind of telling them what you're doing, and they're getting to know you a little bit like, oh, I just got off work, I'm dog tired, but, you know, here I am, and I'm going to get it done tonight, you know what I mean? Yep. Yep. I've had a lot of people ask me just, you know what, even if it's, it's terrible editing, throw some random thing out there just to kind of show me what you're doing. And so I'm going to try to dabble in that a little this year, you know, set up a tripod and film myself being dumb out there with hillbilly equipment. <laughs> if I got to, you know, just, yeah. just show people you can do it. You just got to have that gumption, that motivation to do it. What kind of camera are you going to roll with? Oh, I just got a little Sony Handycam, like literally just $150, just get in and videotape. And, and it started for me, I, you know, I didn't videotape for the YouTube or any of that. I don't, I don't even put anything up on YouTube, but I started just to capture some of the stuff that I was maybe not writing down and just to kind of review it. Like you said, day in review, I can review a footage of deer or whatever and see how they're acting. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, when I first started into it, and and I'm still, I'm not doing it to, you know, get famous or anything like that. I, I'm doing it purely out of uh, a hobby or, you know, yep. and to put my stuff out there and have fun with it. But I can definitely see what you're saying on that. Mm-hmm. So uh, tell everybody where they can find you at on uh, social media. So I... I've got uh, just the Instagram, J-A-B underscore outdoors, you know, real generic. That's that's me, your average guy, nothing special. Oh, yeah. uh, just try to keep it outdoors as much as physically possible with what's going on and what I'm doing at that time of the, you know, I'm not a post every day, post every three days, just here and there, kind of showing what's going on. And then YouTube, same thing, but I don't really have many videos on that yet. Hopefully, like I said, this summer I'll be, trying to get into that a lot more and showing a little bit more of that side of it. Yeah. Well, if you ever need help on the YouTube side of thing, man, don't be afraid to text or call. I can definitely, I've went through my failures and stuff on that stuff too. So I could definitely help you out if you're having any troubles. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. I'm not the most techie person. So that yeah, <laughs> I'm not either. <laughs> I get lucky that I even get to publish this podcast because sometimes <laughs> I can have troubles with it. Like uh, my last episode, I had um, Adam Bonowitz on great guy and uh we got done with it you know he was actually in studio he's my neighbor and we had some beers and stuff and uh we got done with it and the whole video aspect of it was just shot it was, the screen was black i don't know what happened you know i'm not the biggest tech guy either but the audio version's still out there so uh, nice. if you haven't checked out episode 20 yet do it for sure because it's I'll a great episode that. all right i have not i got a few more to get through of yours yet I appreciate the support and yeah. I appreciate you coming on, man. I've, I've had a blast talking to you and I can't wait to get you back on. Hopefully talking about some of these big deer you've been killing. Yeah, man. I appreciate it so much. I really do appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. I wouldn't mind diving into things a little more in detail and going through some stuff. And hopefully I do have some big ones to show you. And get, yeah, get some well, maybe we can do that. like a, a midsummer or late summer episode where you can talk about what you've done food plot wise, management wise, I can tell you about what little I've done on that side of things, but we could just, you know, even food plots, that's a big topic at the end of summer there, you know, a lot of people looking for that content. So we should set that up for sure. Yeah, no, that sounds good. Cause yeah, this year I'm going to have a pretty nice little setup, I think with some of the stuff I'm doing. So that should awesome. be a good time. Well, I appreciate uh, anybody listening or watching on the, on the YouTube and, uh, you know, check us out, hit that subscribe button, give us a, a review on, uh, 
uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anything, anywhere you're listening to this, hook us up with a, a review. And uh, I appreciate everybody. Y'all have a good day.